Hi, welcome to the Forge Church Catch-Up Podcast. My name is Becky and you have joined us for our series, Seven Stories, where we're looking at some of the standout stories that Jesus told over 2,000 years ago. Although these stories were told long ago, they are uncannily relevant and applicable to our lives today. So get yourself comfortable and let's begin. Well, let's name the elephant in the room, shall we? This feels a little bit weird and awkward, I've got to admit. It feels a bit strange. It's like, I was considering what this feels like, it's like when you're divorced and you bump into your ex-partner. And it's like, what do, some of you in here know exactly what that feels like. It's like, what do you do? Do you like, you, you smoke? <laughs> maybe, maybe you kind of grab a, a plate of olivons and engage in small talk and then try and get away as quickly as possible. Maybe you have to get a friend to hold you back from leaping on them and clawing out their eyes and punching their face in and wanting to tell them everything bad about them. Or maybe, or maybe you kind of want to smile and give them a hug and try and remember that at one point in your life, you loved them with all of your heart. And it kind of feels a bit like that for me here and maybe for you too. So respond as you like. That's that's, that's fine. Um, My name's Matt, if you don't know. Um, My name's Matt, and I used to work here. Uh, I worked here for about 10 years, um, 10 great years, really, working with the young people. But in mid-September, the redundancies came, what I like to call the cull. Right? (laughs) That's a joke. Was that a bit soon? Right? (laughs) Okay, maybe next time. No, okay, so the redundancy came, and um, uh, it was, you know, my neck was one of the necks on, on chop, like some others. And, t- you know, I didn't want it, and I hated it. I hated how it was done. It wasn't my choice. And when it's your job and your church tied together, you know, it's really painful, and your church is taken from you as well as your job, and you have no time to say goodbye, and it's awful. And I just want to say thank you for those of you who sent me notes of appreciation and invited me round for dinner. That's been great. You know how to get to my heart. That's through my stomach. Um, And I've spent kind of six long months, really, working out, God, what have you got in store for me? But in mid-March, yeah, about eight weeks ago, um, I started working for the Anglican Church here in Suffolk. The Anglican Church is a big beast. There's 458 churches here in the Diocese of St Edmundsbury and Ipswich, and I'm working for them, teaching, training, inspiring, encouraging, enlightening the youth workers. There's only four full-timers. All the rest are volunteers, and it's my job to encourage them and inspire them. It's my job to talk to some of the incumbents, the vicars, and go, do you know what? In five years' time, your church is going to be dead, unless... You know, you think about young people. And so I'm, I'm loving it. I used to work for an Anglican church before I came here. So I'm going back to my roots a bit. For good or for bad, I'm attending my local Anglican church, um, which is at the bottom of my road in Stowmarket. And the first day I walked in, and there were lots of smiles and hi, welcome, new person. The worship started. I started singing. Every single member of that church turned around to look at me, right? What is going on here? Including the worship leader. So the worship stopped as, as this guy turns. Saying, what is this volume, this noise coming from the back of the church? So, um, so yeah, so I, I'm there and, and um, I'm alive and I'm well. I'm getting paid, which is good. Eurovision is just round the corner. And Liverpool are in the Champions League final. So life is good. Now, I say all of that 
obviously as a way of introduction and kind of telling you what's been happening in my life. But actually it sits really well with the story we're going to look at today. Because we're going to be delving into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, if you know anything about the kingdom of God, it's messy. It's awkward at times. It's uncomfortable. It's complicated. And sometimes it's even subversive. But the kingdom of God is also shelter and haven and sanctuary because the kingdom of God is God's kingdom. You know, last week, if you were here, Dave spoke brilliantly about old wine and new wineskins. You know, trying to think how this God, Jesus, as he came to earth, was exploding all their myths about what faith and religion was about. And this week, it kind of continues it, but on a deeper theme. The kingdom of God is much more about the church rather than individuals. So we're in this series, a simple series in one way, where Jesus is telling stories, seven stories. But but they're more than stories. They're, They're parables. They've all got a teaching point behind them. Now, at times, Jesus uses hyperbole and exaggeration to make a point. At times he speaks deliberately to shock people. At times he comforts them. But don't let any of that distract you. Am I meant to kind of point at the camera and go, yeah, that's good. That's good. Anyway, I'm not really meant to do that. Um, (laughs) he's, He's teaching kingdom truths here. So we mustn't rush too quickly to individualise and personalise it. Now, of course, there's an individual application, but don't rush too quickly to that. The kingdom of God is a big thing. Early on in its ministry, Jesus asked his followers, or rather his followers asked him, why do you use stories to teach? And Jesus actually says this to his followers. He says, you've been chosen to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others won't know these secrets. You know, there's something mysterious in his teaching through parables. And it's much deeper than just a little story. Jesus is actually teaching fundamental hinge points about God's character and why Jesus came. It's like football. I can not mention football as Helen did. Football's a mystery to some, isn't it? You know, and a passion to others. And I get that. On one level, we can all appreciate a good match and appreciate sportsmanship. But to really grasp football, you've got to understand some of the terms that are used. What does offside really mean? What's a flat back four, 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 two, three, three, five, one, using a false number nine, pivot around the spine, nutmeg, park the bus. You know, those are all terms that mean something to football fans. And when you understand those terms, it brings a richness to the game. And of course, to really understand it, to get the best of it, you need to be emotionally invested in it. You know, if you watched any of the matches on Tuesday or Wednesday night, you saw people in tears because they're emotionally invested in it. And that's what Jesus wants us to do in these stories. On one level, of course, the story we're going to look at today is just a children's church activity. You know, cut down Coke bottles, soil, grow mustard seeds on the windowsill. But on the other hand, it's teaching probably some of the deepest messages of Christianity. On one level, it is just about, I say just in inverted commas, just about God bringing great things from humble beginnings. Small things, big results. 
mustard seed, big plant. And of course, that's the truth we could all do with learning. Jesus knew the value of small things, didn't he? He knew the value of insignificant things like mustard seeds. Jesus could be going on a road, going to a place where he's going to have the opportunity to teach thousands of people and he stops to have a little bit of quality time teaching some children because he knew the value of the small insignificant things. He'd be on the way to one important journey and stop to heal one woman or stop to heal a blind man. He wasn't afraid of the small things and how important they really are. You know, he, he raised up the woman who put two copper coins in the bowl, a woman who touched his cloak in an act of faith, the touch of a staff on a rock which splits the Red Sea. You know, Jesus taught us the importance of a glass of cold water sitting at a wellside or that cup of water given in his name to the least of the people is an encounter that God values so much. So I don't want to diminish the importance of humble things, big results. And in fact, our lives are filled with that, aren't they? Little things, seemingly unimportant things. And it's easy to despise those. It's easy to overlook them. It's easy to view those as interruptions or hassles. Our next meeting is the important one. Our next thing we've got to do. And we miss what's right in front of us. You know, God does delight in the little things and he works through the small things. So, of course, on one level, the story that I'm going to read in a moment is about that. And if you leave today just holding on to that truth, great. If you leave holding on to the truth that God delights in the small things and he works through the small things, brilliant. And if you're a visitor here today, you're really welcome. And if it's your first time in church and this all seems a bit complicated, just hold on to this. Look for little opportunities in your life where God may be speaking to you. And that's great. Look for opportunities to show kindness and odd opportunities for conversation. And and think of them as mustard seeds which might grow. But of course there's something deeper in this story. Something majestic actually. Let's read together. It's from Matthew chapter 13. Matthew's one of the biographies of Jesus, really. And it says this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that a man planted in his field. The seed is the smallest of all seeds, but when it grows, it is one of the largest garden plants. It becomes big enough for the wild birds to come and build nests in its branches. We're going to come on to the next bit in just a moment. You see, there's something really deep here and it all hinges on this phrase, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Um, By the way, don't get hung up on the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Different writers use different phrases. There are some nuanced differences, particularly around the political situation. But generally, Matthew's saying the kingdom of heaven because he's writing to a Jewish audience and Jews didn't like to use the name of God. So he's trying, to, um, he's trying to trying to be nice to them by using the phrase kingdom of heaven. There are a few nuanced differences, but don't worry. So there's something different here. And this phrase, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, is used quite a lot in, in the New Testament part of the Bible. John the Baptist says it. Repent, the kingdom of God is near. 
Jesus says the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he says in the Beatitudes. And at the Last Supper, he says, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. So what is this kingdom of God, this kingdom of heaven? Now, I want to say, hands up, I will never do this phrase justice. Certainly not in 10 minutes. You know, it's a deep, multifaceted, mysterious phrase with layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of meaning. In fact, as 21st century Christians, I'm not sure we'll ever fully grasp it because of the depths of cultural and religious ramifications for the original hearers. It's loaded with centuries of meaning, both for the Jews, who are God's chosen people, and the Gentiles, which is everyone else. It's loaded with meaning. But when the first century people heard this phrase, they were looking forward with nationalistic expectation. They were looking forward to a re-establishment of of sovereignty, of kingship, so that Israel, God's country, would never have to fear its enemies again. When they're hearing this, they're in an occupied country. The Romans have taken over and the Jews are living under this oppression. Even after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples still expected Jesus to lead a rebellion and overthrow Rome and make Israel mighty again. He said in the book of Acts, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? It's like, come on, right, now we're ready for a fight. You know, this, this phrase is about power, and it's about military, and it's about oppression, and it's about freedom. But also overlaid with that is privilege and pride and hope against all hope. And the final realisation of ancient, holy, unspeakable promises. But as Matthew, the writer of today's passage, as he's writing, as he's thinking, it makes sense to him that from small beginnings, something big will come. It made sense for him to understand that it wasn't quite as they'd all expected it to be. It made sense for him to go, you know, out of something insignificant, something monumental will grow. He knew that kingdom, kingdom of God, he knew that kingdom meant king, but different than expected. And we kind of get that. We understand kingship to an extent. In fact, we live under a monarchy, new baby born, seventh in line to the throne. But in reality, the UK is a kingdom in in name only. Democracies take its turn and government rules in Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth's stead. But a true kingdom continues to live under the rule and reign of a king. But not just the rule and the reign of a king, it lives under the protection of that king. Being a citizen of a kingship brings rights, but it also brings responsibilities. There's a king with power and authority and a king who exercises that power and authority. He's not afraid to wage war to protect his kingdom and his citizens, but won't rush too quickly or unwisely to that war. And the kingdom of God is about King Jesus, who rules this earth. 
who sits at God's right hand with power and authority. That's what the kingdom of God is about. The blessings and advantages that flow to us because we live under Christ's rule. But it's also about our responsibilities as citizens of that kingdom, as individual followers and as the church. But perhaps even deeper, the kingdom, the kingdom isn't always defined by boundaries. The kingdom is actually wherever the king rules. A king just doesn't rule from the palace. The king rules everywhere that he owns and his presence is felt everywhere. And confusingly, and I know this is confusing, Jesus has been king of his kingdom since the dawn of time. But here he's speaking about bringing the kingdom in to fruition And actually, it will never be complete until he comes again. I know that's confusing, but it's kind of this mysterious, multifaceted approach to the kingdom. And Jesus understood that people would be confused. He got that. You know, there are lots of people sitting there going, oh, so so when you bring this kingdom, is it about power and wonders and pomp and ceremony? And Jesus goes, no, it's about a mustard seed. Now, the moment he says that, They're going, whoa. You see, we hear a story, the kingdom of God is like, and we want to settle down in our armchair because we know it's going to be a good little story. And we're going to hear Jesus spin another pretty little story for us. And when we pray the prayer, as some of you might do, your kingdom come, your will be done. We feel we're on safe ground, but actually we're not. What seems like a pleasant, generalised plea from Jesus is actually a call to countercultural, subversive, revolutionary activity. He wants to turn the existing social order on its head. For the kingdom of God to be ruled and governed by a new set of ethics and a new set of rules. No longer is it the Pharisees, the religious leaders who are God's favourite. No, it's the least of us who perhaps are. He wants everything, social, political, family life, religious life, to be turned inside out and upside down. You see, part of the problem is we create Jesus in our own image. Something like this, which actually is a picture taken from the children's Bible. (laughs) This is how we create Jesus to be. Jesus, meek and mild, probably white-skinned, you know, fair-haired, strolling around the English countryside, talking in happy metaphors about sheep and lights on a hill and doing a few lovely miracles about bread. You know, I've read the whole Bible. I've never read the story of Jesus and the badger. <laughs> it doesn't exist, right? This is a very English, gentle Jesus, meek and mild kind of picture. We perhaps might find it a bit more uncomfortable to think of a man who looked more like Yasser Arafat than David Beckham, who was a Palestinian tradesman on the streets of Gaza, who was a social revolutionary, When we think of Jesus meek and mild, spreading peace and love everywhere, it's all comfortable and it's nice. But in reality, Jesus stood there and said, I've come not to bring peace, but a sword. 
actually said that. We never hear sermons about it because it's a bit too complicated. But it's a historical, cultural, biblical truth. So when Jesus, the political revolutionary, says the kingdom of heaven is like, it should send an excited yet fearful shiver up our spine. We should be on the edge of our seats, not squashed comfortably back. Because Jesus, the Palestinian revolutionary, dedicated his life and his death to pushing people out of their comfort zones and confronting them with truth. So he begins the story, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And we find that comforting. Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, telling us that big things can come from small beginnings. And in our minds, if we know our Bibles, we link it to have faith like a mustard seed. And we think it's okay to only have a little bit of faith because Jesus will do all the rest. And we relax. Because Jesus has told us that's enough. But gentle Jesus didn't tell this parable. It was revolutionary Jesus who told the parable, who said, I'm prepared to live and die to bring a new kingdom in. So what would they have understood when they heard this parable? Well, the moment he mentions mustard seed, they know this is an invasive plant. I mean, nobody in their right mind would plant a mustard seed. It was a weed. The roots went deep into the soil and spread out everywhere. It was quick growing, it was fast growing. The mustard seed was the real threat in the story. The sower has planted the seed. Well, that's crazy enough, but maybe he's planted the seed because in desperation and out of poverty, he's hoping to get something usable very quickly. But he knows the danger that this mustard seed will spread and it will invade the rest of the soil and it will take over the landscape and make the soil unusable for any other crop. It disrupts all the other plants. It was undesirable, it was a weed and it was something to be got rid of, not cultivated. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And of course, that all-encompassing nature of it is exactly what Jesus wants to say. He says this mustard seed, if left to grow really big, almost becomes like a tree and the birds come to nest in it. He's saying, I, I, want, I want the kingdom of God to get everywhere, to have its roots and its tendrils in everything. I know it looks small. I know it might be sown out of desperation, but I want it to invade the land. And I want it to invade and grow so much that it becomes a sanctuary for those who want to rest in it. So when Jesus is talking, he's talking as a threat to the old world order. He's saying, I've come to invade and dominate, and that's what I've come to live and die for. And if we haven't got it, he follows it up with the next story. The kingdom of heaven Sorry, the ne uh, maybe, could you go back a couple of slides? I may have got that wrong. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast. Thank you. It's like yeast that a woman took and hid in a large bowl of flour until it made all the dough rise. Why you'd hide yeast in flour. <laughs> but now we're thinking, oh yeah, we've got this. Great British bake-off. This is all comfortable. This is nice. Woman in her kitchen, kneading the dough while the children play nicely around her. Smell of freshly baked bread in the air. 
husband sitting in the garden with the golden Labrador sitting next to him reading the newspaper. He's reading the newspaper, not the golden Labrador. That would be weird. You know, it's like an idyllic family scene to us. But gentle Jesus wasn't talking about the Great British Bake Off. Yeast, yeast was avoided most of the times of the year, especially the holy times of the year, because unleavened bread was the order of the day. And elsewhere, Jesus uses yeast to describe the insidious, almost evil nature of the Pharisees. And when you grew up in an agricultural, nomadic culture, yeast is pretty hard to handle. Where do you put it? It's unpredictable. It bubbles up. It oozes. It collapses and then grows again. It's hard to handle. It's best avoided altogether. And Jesus takes this unholy, disruptive, uncontrollable symbol of the yeast and overlays it with holiness. Again, he's not talking about a neat, comfortable image here. The kingdom of heaven is unpredictable. It bubbles up here and it bubbles up there and it transforms the environment it's in. It can't be contained. It can't be controlled. It grows in secret and then all of a sudden, boom. And it's at that moment that the penny starts to drop for the hearers. They're going, oh, he's talking about us. And he's talking about here. And he's talking about this land. And he's talking about you. And he's talking about me. And once the seed and the yeast start growing, the sower and the baker can't control it. The kingdom of heaven can't really be controlled like that. The church can't have it all boxed up, neat and tidy. Because once it's sown, it kind of has a life of its own. And the kingdom of heaven can be messy. And at times it can be ugly. If we think of gentle Jesus, meek and mild telling the story, we think of it being beautiful and peaceful and nice. But Jesus, the Palestinian, prepares us for a kingdom that is messy and ugly. And over the next few years, if the forge is what the leaders want it to be, then you won't be creating an altogether beautiful church together. You'll be sharing hospitality in a messy place. A messy place where mistakes are made. A messy place where children will be noisy because they're having fun. A messy place where alcoholics and drug addicts will find a welcome. A messy place where the theologically literate will nurture the theologically illiterate, but then find themselves learning from each other. It's a messy place where sinners sit next to faith-filled people who are also sinners. Like Steve said on the first week of this series, it's a place where people might like us even if they're not a part of us. And if you want to go even deeper, if you want it to get even more messy in your mind, in other parts of the Bible, the birds of the air actually represent evildoers in the world. So what does that mean for this story? for our neat, ordered faith in church. Do evildoers come in and find a home in church? They find sanctuary and haven, and they dilute the church while taking advantage of its benefits. I mean, that's deep, isn't it? You know, this is a deep concept, this kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And all of this, all I've just said, is because Jesus at his heart came to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. To disturb the comfortable in their normal, everyday faith that they think they'd got sorted. 
and to comfort the people who thought they weren't good enough to get in. And all of this is told so that together beauty will be found. Later on in another parable, Jesus tells a story of a lot of searching that eventually finds a pearl of great price. Because when we search, when we work, when we allow the kingdom of God to grow, we find a king who's prepared to die for his people. A king who ushers in a messy, subversive, complicated kingdom that offers sanctuary and joy and hope to anyone who wants to shelter in it. Now, if you remember at the beginning, I said, don't rush too quickly to personal application. And it is a big thing. But, but if we think of it now in terms of personal application, you know, there have always been what I call the invisible ones, tens and thousands of unsung heroes out there. People who've never made a name for themselves. They've never become famous. People who've stood up for justice people who've knelt down to serve, people whose names we will never know, but who've lived out and thereby ushered in the kingdom of God. And I want to be one of those people. And I hope you do too. There's an unsung hero of mine uh, called Ted Dexter. You've probably never heard of him. He never became famous. He was a simple pastor at Dexter Municipal Baptist Church in the States. And one day he was preaching a sermon and he said this phrase. He said, if you see a good fight, get in it. And at the back of that church was a captivated teenager called Martin Luther King. And the rest of that story is history. But maybe we need to find a few more good fights Whenever there's a good fight needed, that's where the kingdom of God should be. Where things are messy, where things are uncomfortable, where things are painful, where there's injustice, where there's poverty, when there's widows and orphans, where there's loneliness, where there's hunger, where there's despair, where there's addiction, where there's homelessness, where there's fear. Perhaps it's worth investigating that just a little bit more to see if it's a good fight worth fighting. Because we want to see if it's a place where God wants us to be, where we can serve with kingdom values and thereby usher in the kingdom of God. And we can see the kingdom grow. But never think that we'll be able to control it. Never think that we'll be able to keep it in our neat little forge box or whatever church we go to. Because the kingdom of God won't be contained like that. Now, as I end, I want us to pray together. And I know this might be a little bit unusual for the forge, actually. um, But we're going to share together the prayer that Jesus taught his followers. Now, I'm sharing this not because I've become an Anglican, uh, but actually because of the third line of the prayer. Your kingdom come. It's a prayer Jesus taught his, his followers, his disciples, to pray every day. And some of you might even do that. Later on, he says, for the kingdom, the power and the glory are his. So if you want to, you don't have to, but if you want to, please join with me in this prayer. Pray that it might take on new significance for us as we as individuals and as a church pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, 
hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Lord Jesus, may we become more like you. May we ache to be Christ-centred and kingdom-orientated. May we revel in messy kingdom values and may we rejoice that you are our King. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We want to keep the conversation going, so make sure you follow us on our social media accounts at Forge Church. If you want to see or hear more about The Forge, check us out online at forgechurch.com where there's an opportunity to find out more, a chance to give and to browse previous series. See you next time.